Thanks for listening to the Christ Covenant Sermon Podcast. For more information, visit ChristCovenant.com. This morning's scripture is um, all of Genesis 32, all of Genesis chapter 32. As believers in a triune God, we believe that men under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit uh, wrote these words down. And as such, it is as if uh, the Lord Jesus himself is saying these very words. Genesis chapter 32 Jacob went on his way, and the angels of God met him. And when Jacob saw them, he said, this is God's camp. So he called the name of the place Mahanaim. And Jacob sent messengers before him to Esau, his brother, in the land of Seir, the country of Edom, instructing them, thus you shall say to my lord Esau, thus says your servant Jacob, I have sojourned with Laban and stayed until now. I have oxen, donkeys, flocks, male servants, and female servants. I have sent to tell my Lord in order that I may find favor in your sight. And the messengers returned to Jacob saying, we came to your brother Esau and he is coming to meet you. And there are 400 men with him. Then Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed. He divided the people who were with him and the flocks and herds and camels into two camps, thinking, if Esau comes to the, camp, to the one camp and attacks it, then the camp that is left will escape. Jacob said, O God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac, O Lord who said to me, return to your country and to your kindred that I may do you good. I am not worthy of the least of all the deeds of steadfast love and all the faithfulness that you have shown to your servant. For with only my staff I crossed this Jordan, and now I have become two camps. Please deliver me from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him, that he may come and attack me, the mothers with the children. But you said, I will surely do you good and make your offspring as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for multitude. So he stayed there that night, and from what he had with him, he took a present for his brother Esau, 200 female goats and 20 male goats, 200 ewes and 20 rams, 30 milking camels and their calves, 40 cows and 10 bulls, 20 female donkeys and 10 male donkeys. These he handed over to the servants, Every drove by itself and said to his servants, pass on ahead of me and put a space between drove and drove. He instructed the first, when Esau, my brother, meets you and asks you, to whom do you belong? Where are you going? And whose are these ahead of you? Then you shall say, they belong to your servant Jacob. They are a present sent to my Lord Esau. And moreover, he is behind us. He likewise instructed the second and the third and all who followed the droves. You shall say the same thing to Esau when you find him. And you shall say, moreover, your servant Jacob is behind us. For he thought, I may appease him with the present that goes ahead of me. And afterward, I shall see his face. Perhaps he will accept me. So the present passed on ahead of him. And he himself stayed that night in the camp. The same night he arose and took his two wives, his two female servants, and his eleven children and crossed the the ford of the Jabbok. 
He took them and sent them across the stream and everything else that he had. And Jacob was left alone. And a man, and a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. When the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket and Jacob's hip was hit out of joint. And he wrestled with him. Then he said, let me go for the day is broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And he said to him, what is your name? And he said, Jacob. Then he said, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked him, please tell me your name. But he said, why is it that you ask my name? And there he blessed him. So Jacob called the name of the, of the place Peniel, saying, for I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. The sun rose upon him as he passed Penuel, limping because of his hip. Therefore, to this day, the people of Israel do not eat the sinew of the thigh that is, is on the hip socket, because he touched the socket of Jacob's hip on the sinew of the thigh. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, we've been studying the life of Jacob, and um, if you've been with us uh, last week, um, we talked about Genesis 25, and actually, uh, on the sermon talk back that we have a little podcast we do every week, um, Josh was actually on there last week and he asked me, when do you think that Jacob uh, came to know the Lord? When was Jacob saved? When uh, did Jacob really understand God and, and have a relationship with God? When was his life made right before God? And, and I said, actually, without even really thinking about what I was about to preach on this week, we had already scheduled this sermon. I, th- I said, I think it's Genesis 32, this moment when Jacob wrestles God. This is when he's changed. This is when he as he says, sees God face to face and has changed. If, if you were with us last week, uh, I mentioned that even though these uh, sermons that we're preaching through, this, uh, this book of Genesis, it's a lot of narrative. It's a lot of story, just like what we just read. These, these wonderful stories, these interesting stories about how, how God is interacting with his people. In this narrative, there actually is a lot of doctrine. Last week, if you were here, we looked at the doctrine of election, that God has his purposes, yet he's working out those purposes in the decisions that people like Jacob and Esau are actually making. But this week, we're going to be thinking about the doctrine of salvation. I think this is a story of salvation. Now, if you've been with us for several weeks, we actually had a whole sermon series on salvation and the doctrine of salvation and, and how God saves people, how God brings people into a right relationship with himself. And of course, through that sermon series, we looked at a lot of passages of scripture that were that were more imperatival in nature. They, they were more just kind of truth declarations, like uh, Romans 3, for example, or 2 Corinthians 3. Not really narrative passages, but just truth claims about what is true about God and what is true about us. And as important as that is, it, it's kind of easy, unless you start to think about these things in narrative ways, uh, to make salvation a mechanical thing. We even talk about it in these terms. Have, have you done the thing? Have you gotten saved? Have you prayed the prayer? Have you been baptized? Have you done the thing? And so I think this passage is a really helpful passage because it puts the, the story of someone's salvation in kind of a story form, in a narrative form, uh, and how someone really comes to know the living God. And there's two things that I want to kind of think about with you as we look at the passage. The first is how people pursue salvation. And then the second is how God pursues salvation. So let's look at how people pursue 
salvation. Now, just to catch you up in the story, if you were here last week, we looked at a very famous passage, Genesis chapter 25. Uh, if, you, if you weren't here, if you've been around church for a while, you may have heard it before. It's, the, it's kind of the birthright story where Esau trades his birthright for a bowl of lentil stew. And it's this amazing story and this fascinating story about how uh, Esau was, was foolish and obviously gave his brother this great honor, this great blessing simply for a bowl of stew. Uh, but just a couple of chapters later, the, the similar story kind of happens. Esau is once again duped, if you will, by his little brother. Isaac is getting old. Isaac, the father of Jacob and Esau, who was the son of Abraham, he's getting old and he wants to give his blessing to his son. And so he sends Esau out into the field. He says, Esau, go kill some game and prepare a meal for me and bring it in. And we're gonna, and I'm going to bless you. And they're going to have this sacred moment together. But, Jake, but Rebecca, rather, Isaac's wife, hears wind of this. And she realizes, wait a second, I want Jacob to receive the blessing and not Esau. So she comes up with a plan. She, she goes and uh, kills some of their own herd and she prepares a meal. And then she takes some of Esau's clothes uh, so it would smell like Esau. And then I think it's interesting. She takes the, the skin of goats and puts it on the arm and on the neck of Jacob so that when, when Isaac felt his son, he would think that he was really touching Esau. You read that in Genesis 27, you think, how hairy did Esau have to be if you needed the, the, the skin of goats in order to fool him? But that's what happened. And of course, he goes in and, and, he, and Isaac eats the meal. And then he gives, thinking that he was blessing Esau, he gives his fatherly blessing, this great blessing, passing on the blessing of God's people down to his son, Jacob. But of course, then Esau comes back from his hunt and he's ready to receive the blessing, but it's too late. He goes in and pleads with his father, but Isaac had already given the blessing to Jacob. And so we read in Genesis 27, 41, now Esau hated Jacob because of the blessing with which the father had blessed him. And Esau said to himself, the days of mourning for my father are approaching. In other words, my father's about to die. Then when, when dad dies, I am going to kill Jacob. But once again, Rebecca hears of this and she warns Jacob and Jacob runs away, he flees, and he goes to live in the land of Rebecca's brother, a man named Laban. And this is really kind of the coming of age story for Jacob. He, he goes out there a boy, but he becomes a man. And a lot happens in his life when he's out there with Laban. He gets married. But even that's an interesting story. Laban kind of fools him. Laban kind of tricks Jacob into marrying his oldest daughter when really Jacob wanted to marry his youngest daughter. Eventually, uh, Jacob ends up marrying both uh, daughters, both Rachel and Leah. And that's an important part of the story that we're going to talk more about next week. But more than finding a wife and beginning to have children, uh, Jacob also gets rich. Uh, Laban had fooled Jacob, but Jace, Jacob kind of has the last laugh. He ends up kind of tricking Laban. Uh, and again, it's, it's too long for me to tell exactly what happened, but he ended up taking a big portion of of Laban's flock to be his own. So he went off, he found uh, a family, he got rich, and now it's time for him to go back home. And that's where we pick up today. He's heading back to his homeland, heading back to the land of Canaan. He's heading back home. And I got my 20th high school reunion next year. 
And, uh, you know, that's kind of an exciting time, right? You have 20 years. You go out, do your thing, get married, start a job. Now it's time to go back home and show everybody what you've done for yourself. And this is what uh, Jacob's doing. He's heading back home. He's, he's become a man now. And, and everybody's going to be happy to see him, right? Well, everybody except for, of course, Esau. <laughs> but, of course, it's been years. He's been away for a long time. That whole birthright stuff, the whole blessing stuff. It's water under the bridge, right, Esau? You've forgotten about that, right? But of course he hadn't. And that's where really I want to begin thinking with you. Verse 6, the messengers that he had sent out to greet his family returned to Jacob. He said, we came to Esau. He sent him a nice little greeting. Esau, happy to see you. He said, we came to Esau and he is coming to meet you. But there are 400 men with him. And then Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed. And it's interesting, uh, part of this whole story, if you've been kind of reading along and we've been, you've been, you, hopefully we're following along in the Rhythms Guide uh, as we've been talking about these few passages. This is really the first time in Jacob's life when he is shaken. You know, he always has a plan. He always knows what to do. He always knows what he's doing until now. 400 men are coming and he is distressed. I've been reading a book that came out, I think maybe early summer or so, called The Second Mountain. It's great. It's by a guy named David Brooks, who I've read his columns. He writes regularly for the New York Times. Um, it's not a Christian book, but it kind of is. Uh, in fact, I think David Brooks actually has become a Christian. He doesn't say that in the book. He writes it as a secular book, but it's a really interesting, it's, a, it's an interesting book. And he kind of gives this analogy of two mountains. And basically he says that most of us spend our lives, most of our lives, trying to get to the top of the first mountain. This is your ambition. This is, this is your goals. This is what's going to, this is how you're going to go out and make a name for yourself. And you know, this is true of this crowd here. I mean, this is you. This is, you're like first mountain people. You, you were the ones that, you know, when mom told you to do your homework, all your friends were out playing, but you came inside and you did your homework and you did well and you worked hard. And you did what you were supposed to do. And you got into that good college and you got that job. I mean, you, you were the ones that really made it happen. You were the ones that on the last play of the game, you knew that the ball was coming to you, right? They were going to put the game in your hands. You were the, the little girl that maybe you were from uh, a town that nobody really got out of, but everybody knew that you were going to get out of it. You were going to make a name for yourself, and now you're on the first mountain and you're doing great. Maybe you're a little further in life. You have a family, you have a wife and a kids, but you got that house you've always wanted. You're on the first mountain and you're killing it. But David Brooks says, for most of us, something comes along that kind of throws you off the first mountain. It, it may be a defeat. It, you maybe lose your job. You don't get that promotion. You don't get on the, the right path. You know, you, you know, the path is here and you got to do this by the time you're this age and th this by the time you're this age. And then by the time you're this age, you'll get what you really want. But you didn't get there quite right. Or maybe an illness. You get sick. You get cancer. Physically, something breaks down. It may be some realization that you just have. You get a little depressed. You know, I, I talk about this with a friend of mine. We talk about the sorrow of life. And the sorrow of life is, <clears throat> I think, ultimately, kind of looking at it from a Christian lens, it's, it's a longing for our homeland. But the sorrow of life 
is something that, that all of us have. And even if you're not a Christian today, you know, you know what I'm talking about. It's that, it's that little sadness that you get. It's that little feeling uh, that things just aren't quite right. And you know, when you're in your 20s, there's exciting things going on. You know, you're getting your job, you're, you're starting off in your career, uh, you're, you're meeting girls, you're meeting boys, it's an exciting and a fun time. And you have a little sorrow then, you have that little sorrow, but you think, but, but I just need to get a little further in my career, and I just need to get married, or I just need to have my, I just need to get a house, and then, then all this is going to go away, everything's going to be settled out and just fine. You learn how to live with this little sorrow, but then you kind of get into your 30s, and you've had the job, you know, and you've You've done all the exciting things that the job promises. You've made the, you made the promotion. You've been traveling. You've been on an airplane before. And you're kind of like, all right, you know, this is kind of getting old. And, you know, and you, you married one of those girls, one of those guys from your 20s. And she's great. But, you know, you've been married a while. And you got kids and all this adventure that you wanted. It seems like you're just planning, you know, changing a lot of diapers. And you're driving a minivan. And you're going to soccer practice. And this little sorrow starts to creep in. I was talking to a guy a couple weeks ago. I went to lunch on a Friday and I got onion rings because it was Friday. <laughs> and uh, somebody said to me, you know you're in your 30s when you get onion rings on Friday and that's the highlight of your day, right? <laughs> The sorrow of life, this kind of sadness that, that we all have, that we kind of carry around. It, it's, a, it's a realization that as great as things may be, life is hard. Things are not always as they are supposed to be. And that can kind of throw you off the mountain. Whatever it is, something comes along and throws you off the first mountain. But you know what you do? And, you know, Brooks talks about this, and I see this so well illustrated here. What you do when you get thrown off the mountain, if you're a first mountainer, you get you get up, right? You get back on the mountain. You 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 work even harder, right? You go and you get the next deal that no one thought you could get. Or you do more fun stuff, right? Like you've just you've just been vacation vacationing at 30A. What you really need is like Costa Rica, you know? And so then you, you take the next step, you do the big thing, you go from the more awesome. You come up with a plan. You get back on the mountain. That's what Jacob does here. He divides his camps. Um, so if, even if Esau overtakes him, he's only going to get half of his possession. You get thrown off the mountain. You might say a little prayer. That's exactly what Jacob does. You know, God, I need you now. I'm going to need you this time. You said you're going to bless me. I'm going to trust you for this. And then if you're really a first mountain person, this is the way that man pursues salvation. You, you throw everything that you have Back to get back on the mountain, to overcome this trial. And that's exactly what Jacob does. Look, he creates this parade. 200 female goats, 20 male goats, 200 ewes, 20 rams, 30 milking camels and their calves. There's just enormous amount of wealth. He is throwing at Esau and saying, look, you, I am going to calm him down. I am going to appease him. I am going to oppress, impress him. This will calm him down. This will do it. This will save me from Esau. And this is the way that man pursues salvation. You prove yourself. You prove yourself over and over and over again. And even when life tries to throw you off the mountain, you're the one that gets back up and gets back on the mountain. I don't know what it is that you're, you're throwing at the mountain. It could be your success, your money, your religion. 
you're fighting for that good obituary, right? I've done this and that. I've done it. Look at all I've done for the world. Look at all I've done for God. This is how man pursues salvation. But the second part of the story tells us how God pursues salvation. This is a pretty famous passage, Jacob wrestling with God. I'm sure you've read it before. There's some obvious things that we talk about from this passage. Jacob gets the limp. God changes his name. We know it's an important passage. It's a pivotal passage in Scripture. But let's be honest, okay? Can we, you know, can we get real here? I know I'm your pastor. I'm not supposed to say this stuff. But it's kind of a weird passage, isn't it? Like, you ever read this and you thought, what, what am I supposed to take away from this passage? It's kind of a strange passage. I, I, you, know, you might be reading this story and you're like, well, who wins the wrestling match? Like, I know God is supposed to win because he's God and the Bible's all about him, but it kind of seems like Jacob wins the match. In fact, at one point, the, the man that's wrestling with him, who, of course, he'd seen the face of God, it says that he could not prevail over Jacob. This is kind of convenient if you're a first mountain guy, right? You're like, I even fought with God and I prevailed. Now, again, you, you, you say it this way. You say, well, I still have the marks. still have this little limp. It was a tough battle. But I kind of I prevailed. And now, God and I work together. And I actually think this, if this is kind of how you read this passage, this is kind of Atlanta Christianity. You know, there was a time when I was running from God, when I wasn't on God's team, but then God kind of humbled me. I got wise. I learned from God. I realized, you know what? God and I could work together. His wisdom was valuable. His principles were good. And we could both together be really successful. This is kind of Atlanta Christianity. Don't be too proud. Respect the wisdom of God. Acknowledge God. And know that with God, you can make a name for yourself. But is that what's happening here? Is that what this is? You know, the amazing thing about this passage is that in this passage, God is trying to get Jacob's attention. He's trying to get at Jacob's heart. He wants Jacob's devotion. And he comes to Jacob in this kind of weak way. And that is what exposes Jacob. That is what makes Jacob vulnerable. And that's what I believe leads Jacob to this salvation moment. I've seen God face to face. And yet my life has been delivered. When you get thrown off the mountain, some people think that salvation is in your strength. You get up, you get back on the mountain. It's your grit. It's your ability to get back on. Some people, the Atlanta Christianity, you, you kind of think salvation is in your weakness. It's being humbled a little bit, learning to walk with a limp, but finding that in that, you're actually even stronger. What this story is telling us, what salvation is really about, is when you meet God in his weakness and then realize how strong he really is. 
I want to say that again. Salvation is actually found when you meet God in his weakness, and then you realize how strong he really is. It's a weird story because you're kind of like, look, if God wanted to wrestle Jacob and make him vulnerable, why didn't he just flex, right? Why didn't he just come at Jacob with all of his strength? That's what I would have done. If I wanted somebody to submit, I would just say, hey, submit. I'm going to show you who I am. But that's not what God does here. That's not how God meets Jacob. And maybe to help you understand this, um, I'll tell you this. I have two sons, and I like to wrestle with them. Maybe, maybe I should put it this way. They like to wrestle with me. And yeah, they're five, and they're three, and they're tough. They're strong kids. Um, and we have so much fun. In fact, if, if I wanted to, they would wrestle with me for hours and hours and hours. And they're always trying to start it with me. They want me to wrestle them. But of course, when I wrestle them, I don't try as hard as I can. Right? I, I don't put my full weight into it. I don't put my full strength into it. Because, and I want you to hear this, my goal with my sons isn't to beat them. It's to know them, right? I wrestle with my kids because I love them and I want to know them. And in this weird way, this weird masculinity thing, when we're wrestling, we're bonding. We're getting to know one another. We're kind of learning one another. It's kind of like I'm actually telling them that I love them as I wrestle with them. If you will, when we wrestle, I have to become like them. Even though I'm bigger than them and stronger than them, I become like them in these little wrestling matches. And in that, it serves as this way that we can know one another. So what is happening here? Why did God come down as a man and wrestle with Jacob? Why did God become weak for Jacob? (laughs) And I want you to see, this is because this is what God always does for the people that he loves. He is gracious. He meets us where we are. He wants to know us and he wants us to know him. Despite our weaknesses, despite our sin, this is how God comes to us. This is why when Jesus comes, he doesn't come in all of his authority and power. He comes and he is veiled. He is knowable. If God would have come to Jacob in all of his strength, what would have happened? He would have crushed him. He would have overwhelmed him. Jacob could never have really let himself known, be known to God. Jacob couldn't even stop Esau, much less God. And if God would have come to Jacob in all of his strength, the only choice that Jacob would have had would have had, just like with Esau, is to show his strength back. But he doesn't. He comes to him in this weak way, this way where Jacob can really wrestle with him. And that's how Jacob actually gets to know God. I was sharing this in our uh, little pre-service meeting. It just kind of came to me then. You ever have like an accountability group with someone? Um, you know, you may not have ever done that, but a lot of Christians will meet together and they'll, they'll kind of confess sin together and pray for one another together. 
And if you ever go to accountability group with someone, and maybe you say you go to accountability group and you're ready to confess a sin that day. You're saying, you know what, I really need help with this. I want this person to pray with me. You've been struggling with, with this or that. And you go and they go first. And they say, you know what? God has given me great victory over all my sin. I haven't sinned at all this week. I've been doing great. And you know what? I volunteered at Safe House Christian Ministry. Uh, I actually brought all of David Dieter's 86 cans to the food drive. Um, my life's going great. We've had family devotion every day. I didn't miss a quiet time this week. In fact, one morning I spent four or five hours with God. It was great. How are you doing? <laughs> and if that's what happens, if that's what happens, what do you do? You, you say, oh, I'm doing great too. In fact, and then you like get your little resume out, you know, right? If, if God would, and here's the analogy. If, if all God showed himself to us was just in strength and strength and strength, which he could because he is glorious, then we would never really let our guard down to him. We'd always be pursuing salvation man's way. Yeah, look what I've done. Look what I've done. Let me flex back at you, God. And we would just look pathetic. But God, because he loves us, comes to us in weakness. He comes to us as a man. He comes to us veiled. When do we know God most fully? We know him through the cross most fully. The most humiliating thing that could have ever happened to anyone. That's how God shows himself to us. That's how God says, here's where you can meet me. If you really want to know God, some of you come to God with your strength, with your strength. That's not where salvation is. Some of you, some of you come to God with your weakness. You're like, oh, I know you got the upper hand. I'm weak. Maybe we can work together. That's not where salvation ultimately is. Salvation really happens when you see that God has come to you in his weakness. And that through that, you can ultimately see how strong and good and glorious he really is. That's when Jacob has changed. And he says, I've seen the living God now. There's no shield. I've actually seen him. And I see how great he is. We're the kind of people that in one stanza, we sing about God being bloody. In the next stanza, we sing about God being glorified. What is that? That's Christianity. We meet God at this weak place, the cross, so that we can share with him in the power of the resurrection. Someone commented to me last week about the, um, the passage that we looked at and Jacob and all his flaws. And they said, you know, here's my problem with the Bible. It's always justifying people, Right? It's this tale of these people who are being justified. People are obviously writing this stuff later and they're trying to justify their patriarchs. But look at Jacob. What is there good about him? He's shady. He's always looking out for himself. He's getting his due. To which I would say, don't you realize that you know this about Jacob because the people that are writing the Bible are writing it to you? And look, here is Jacob. He should, he should get his due. Esau's going to get him, but the Bible is always justify, justifying him. And, and you know what my response is? Is yes, <laughs> that is what the Bible is doing. It's always justifying people. The Bible is full of people that God should have cursed, but that he blessed. Because I want you to hear this. The Bible is ultimately about someone 
that God should have blessed, but he cursed. You see, in a sense, Jesus also wrestled with God. Only God, when Jesus was on the cross, God didn't come to Jesus in his weakness. He didn't come to Jesus halfway. God came to Jesus on the cross with his full strength and his full weight, all of his weight against our sin. And he was crushed as a man underneath the weight of God so that people like Jacob and people like me and people like you could stand. God was willing to curse someone that should have been blessed so that people like us who should have been cursed could be blessed. You know, so many of you understand the idea of God. You know that there is a God out there and you know that, you know, you want to be good with him. You want him to be good with you. And some of you come to him with your strength. Say, look, look what I've done. Look at this obituary. Justify me, justify. You parade yourself. You parade your good deeds before God. You see his strength. And, and, and rather, some of you come to God in your weakness. You see God's strength and you learn from God. And then you say, well, God, let's work together. Help me on your way. But here's this. Salvation really happens when you meet God in Christ, when you see how much he really loves you, when you see who he is, when you're captured by him, when you see him face to face, and when you can see him face to face because he's, he's veiled himself for you to see him. When he comes to you in weakness, that's how you can actually know him. That's how you can actually behold him and trust him. And notice after this, it's interesting, the next chapter, Jacob doesn't put anything else in front of him. Esau is still coming. Esau is still coming. But he, he doesn't put anything else in front of him in the next chapter. In fact, he just goes by himself out to meet Esau. Why? Because he's seen the face of God. He's seen God now, and nothing else really matters. I have seen the living God and not been killed. And, and when this happens, when you meet God, this is when you're free. This is when, to use David Brooks's line, you're on the second mountain. This is when you're really saved from your own life. This is when you're saved from having to justify yourself in this life and having to find your identity in this life. And I guess I just want to ask you today, have you been saved? I'm not asking you, have you done the Christian act of praying a sinner's prayer? Have you been baptized? I'm saying, have you seen the face of God? Do you know him? Have you, have you been lifted out of this world. You know, some of you literally go into church your entire life. And I know you can show God your strength, right? I know you've got a list. You've, you've got a parade. You've got two parades. You can just parade in front of God and say, look at all I've done for you. Some of you, I know, maybe you understand God's strength. You have Atlanta Christianity, right? You've had the pivotal moment You've prayed a sinner prayer, you, you, you show a little humility before God, and now you and the Lord are on the same team. You guys do good stuff together. But have you really ever met God? Have you been set free? Has he come to you? Have you known him in his weakness? Have you known him? Have you seen him face to face? Do you know the living God? I had a conversation on Sunday with a young lady. She's been coming to our church, and she's recently... Uh, become a Christian. She didn't grow up in church, um, but she became a Christian. And I asked her, well, you know, how did you, how did you become a Christian? And I loved her answer. She said, I read the gospel of John and fell in love with Jesus. 
And I love what she said after that. She said, as I was reading, I just realized how casual Jesus was and how knowable he was. And I thought to myself, I think if I can know him, which I can, then I can know God. Of course, John, John's gospel says that, John 14. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. You see, when that happens, you're free. You've seen God. You know what's great about the conversation I was having with her is I didn't have to tiptoe. I didn't have to like convince her. I feel like so much of my job as a pastor is I'm like trying to convince y'all that Christian behavior actually is good and that following Christ is right. I didn't have to convince her. She just said, what do I do? What do I do next? Because I already know it's good. She's seen God face to face and yet survived and been changed. Have you... Have you? Have you really met him? Have you really seen him like this? You know, my favorite uh, characters in the history of the church is a guy named William Carey. Some of y'all know William Carey. He was the father of the modern missions movement. And he was really a giant of a man. He's not as famous as he probably should be, right? You, you probably have heard of people like Augustine or John Calvin. You may not know William Carey, but he, he really did so much just to get the missions moved, people going on mission all over the world. And he was, he was a giant. I mean, he was a giant. I mean, this guy in his life, in fact, if you want to know more, Ryan West actually wrote part of his, or his dissertation on part of Carey's work. So talk to Ryan. But he moved to India in 1893. He stayed there until he died. I think it was or 1793. He stayed there until he died in 1835. And, and in that time, he started countless churches. He started a college. He translated the Bible fully into six languages. He worked with parts of Bible translation into 35 languages. Uh, he, was an, he was just an enormous figure in terms of bringing justice uh, to India and social good. I mean, the guy just did so, so much. It really can't be measured all that Carey contributed. But... And at the end of his life, there's a lot of things that you could have said about Carrie, right? He, he, this guy had the obituary. This guy could have said, I've built something. He could have said it in human form, human, the strength of man, he was strong. But even with the Lord, he was strong. But, but here's what Carrie said about himself. His tombstone is still there in India. And it says, a wretched, poor, and helpless worm on thy kind arms I fall. You know, I love that because of two things, but namely because of the word kind. <laughs> How does he namely see God? How does he chiefly see God? He realized that God has come to him in kindness. That God's arms are reaching out to him in kindness. And actually, that is what opens his eyes to see, you know, compared to him, I'm just a wretched worm. I'm a helpless worm, but I can fall on these arms. I can fall on these arms. I can rest on these arms. I can see him. I can behold him. He'll hold me, and I won't die. He'd seen the face of God and been changed. Let's pray. Father, I ask uh, now just that in your grace, Lord, um, 
you would open our hearts and open our eyes and open our minds. That we could just see uh, Jesus, (laughs) the one who will one day forever be high and lifted up. But Father, I pray that we could see him now as the one who has come low. We don't have to be ashamed of, we don't have to hide from. He comes to us in kindness. He comes to us as one of us. He comes to us in weakness so that we can know him and be known by him. So Father, I pray that you would open our eyes and open our hearts to Jesus the Lord today. In seeing him, Lord, we'll be able to see you. In seeing him, Lord, in this knowable way that he presents himself, Lord, just like a man wrestling with us in our tent, Lord, just this very, very knowable, close, personal way, Lord, I pray that in that we can realize we've seen the face of God and survived and changed. So draw us in, Father, today. Help us to see the, the hope and the assurance that we have in Christ, the love that, Lord, you display to people that you are pursuing. You come to us not to crush us, but you come to us to know us. So I pray, Father, that in your goodness and in your kindness and and in your wisdom, Lord, you would open our hearts, even at this moment. time of response and if anyone's here and uh, you would want me to pray with you or you would want me to just answer a question that you may have um, there'll be some other of our deacons or pastors around we would we would be privileged it, it doesn't have to be about the sermon um, maybe God's doing something in your heart right now and I'd love to have the opportunity to follow up with you but maybe it's just you just have a big need you have something weighing on you thanks for listening to the Christ Covenant Sermon Podcast If you have any prayer needs, questions, or comments about the sermon, we would love to hear from you. So please text us at 678-951-9041. Or feel free to email Jason at jason at christcovenant.com.